As I shared, I'm excited to be hanging out with you guys, but I want to start with this idea. Anybody here ever worked as a barista before? Right? Seriously? Nobody? Okay, we got a couple, a few people, a few baristas, some on-the-grind folks here and there. I've never actually worked as a barista, but part of my old job, I was on staff with a church in Dallas. Great place, this church, it was the size, their facility, it housed a coffee shop. They had their own coffee shop. The coffee shop, there was probably 12 baristas. There was a manager over it. And this, this coffee shop continued to grow, and they were doing great things, exciting, basically providing great coffee to the community, so people were coming. And so my boss came to me and said, hey, would you mind jumping in and helping out and just bringing, bringing a bit of a leadership perspective to some of the things going on at the coffee shop? Sure. Don't know anything about coffee, but I'd love to. So all I'd say is I got to sit down, and I got to start to learn the ins and outs of what it's like to manage a coffee shop, right? One of the things we're sitting there, we're talking through all of it, because again, I don't know much about coffee. So I can remember sitting there and talking through different things. And at the end of one of the times, the manager there, this gal, I said, hey, here's the deal. We'll talk through all this, but then I get to go behind the counter and I get to make my own latte. I tend to always get the latte. If you're wondering if I get a skinny latte, which is skim milk, no way. Go full blast whole milk. It's delicious. So I'm excited. I want to make this coffee. We have this meeting. I get to go behind the counter, and I'm sitting there. Now, if, if you've ordered drinks, if you've seen people prepare drinks, anything like that, you kind of have a general idea of what they're doing to where even if you don't really know how to do it, and one of the blessings of my personality, I've watched enough people, and it's like, all right, I grab that. I flip that knob. How bad can this be? So here's what I do. I go to start, where the first thing you do is you grind the beans. I've seen people do that. I push the button, the scoop thing that the beans go into. I have no idea what that's called, but I put the scoop thing under it. I push the button. Beans come down. There's that tamp thing, you know, for espresso. I start tamping it down, making it nice and tight. I put it in the machine. I turn it to the right, and there's this button you flip. Flip the button. Everybody's looking at me like I broke the machine. The machine's going to be fine. The machine will be fine. I flip this switch, and I set down the two uh, espresso shot glasses right there. Next thing I go, so I got my espresso starting to come. It takes a minute. It's hot. It's got to send it through. So espresso's taking a minute. So I go. I reach into the fridge. I pull out the whole milk. And they've got those metal containers. I don't know how much, so I just ballpark it. I pour some in like this, right? Pour a little bit in like that. I don't know. I probably filled it up that much. Take it over, because this is where it gets complicated. Take it over to the milk frother. It's that spigot that they twist the knob, and it makes that, like, sound. You know what I'm talking about? Coffee shops are loud. Shh. Yeah, you guys are like, please, shh. It's too loud. <laughs> right? But it makes that sound. So I go to put it in here, and this is the part where I didn't know it. This is actually really tricky. Right? Because right here, here's what happens. I, at first, I put it in. I don't know how far to put that milk frother down into the whole milk. Because if I put it up at the top, here's what happens. I start to get a bunch of foam, which to me seems right. But then the manager, the expert, 
she begins to tell me, no, 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 you have to put the milk frother towards the bottom to warm it up, and then you actually pull it towards the middle. Because what you end up doing towards the middle is it keeps it warm. But then you also get some froth, but not too much froth. Because if you know, again, I'm trying to do latte, I'm not trying to do cappuccino. So it mattered where I put it. All that to say is, I'm over here trying to froth milk. Good people could probably do that in like 20 seconds, 10 seconds, something like that. Man, I'm over there literally, it's two minutes in counting. Like my arm's getting tired holding this thing. I'm nervous. So finally, I tamp this down. I close it. I clean it off. I go to pull it over. I have my two shots of espresso. I take them off. I set it down. I get my cup out. All of a sudden, the manager sees me. I go to take these shots and pour it in the cup. She looks at me and says, you can't use those. I was like, what do you mean? What did I do wrong? Oh, oh you did nothing wrong. They just sat out too long. And she says... They're dead. Everybody ever heard of a dead shot of espresso? Yeah, I hadn't either, right? So stay tuned. If you're a barista, right, you're welcome. Here's what she comes to tell me, all right? She loves coffee, all that stuff. The espresso comes and it's poured out. As soon as it comes out, you're essentially on a shot clock. Now, since I've done a little bit of research, people argue over, is that shot clock 10 to 15 seconds? which, by the way, is a standard policy for every Starbucks. Is it 10 to 15 seconds? Is it 30 seconds? Is it one minute? Or are there people who are like, that's just nonsense. It doesn't matter. It's not going to really change anything, right? She begins to explain where that espresso, once it's poured out, it shows up in that shot glass. At the very beginning, you can see it in three layers. She described it to me. The top, she called it the crema. The next part, she just called it the body. That's that brown part that's, that's kind of transparent, and you can see through it, and it just looks like caramelized deliciousness. And the bottom, that's where you really begin to see some of the grinds and the beans. She calls it the heart. She says, hey, after about 15 seconds, here's what happens. The crema gets oxidized, and it begins to compress and dissolve into the rest of it. And what was once in three sections all of a sudden becomes spread throughout, and you lose some of the flavor profile. That's about where I looked at her. I'm like, I'm the whole milk guy. I'm not even going to notice this. Like, I probably, I wouldn't care. I could reheat it. I could do all of this. There's like coffee purists, and then I'm like, Folgers sounds amazing and affordable. I'll do it. Right? So she's sharing all this from the perspective, and she's saying, no, that shot, it's dead. And she really takes it, pours it out. And I have to go and redo it. Because what, what she put before me is this idea of you have to take the espresso. And if you're just going to drink a shot of espresso, there's a reason why people come. They'll take a small spoon in a small section, and they'll stir it to try to get it to cool off as fast as they possibly can, and they'll drink it in one sip because they're trying to preserve that flavor profile. Or, or they'll come, they'll add water, they'll add milk, they'll add something else, and the language she uses, it saves the shot. They'll add something else to it. Now, I can remember sitting there and just wanting my, my drink, but she begins to share this as she pours this coffee out. And essentially what she's saying is, it's useless. It's not the same worth to the customer. And so if you want to put something quality forward, you need to really time it to where I'm sitting there. And all of a sudden, my respect for baristas, besides the fact that they just get yelled at all day long by people with low tips, my respect for baristas goes up. Because there's this whole timing mechanism, okay, as soon as that pours, and really got to have the milk done in this time, because then I got to pour it here. If not, I'm supposed to pour it out. Here's the reason I start with that story. As we look at James 2, 
as we examine this section of Scripture, here's what James is going to say. There is a faith that's dead. It's like that dead shot. It's, it's useless. It's, it's not that it was ever once not alive and delicious and beautiful. It's not that you can't still drink it. But effectively, it's dead. And that's where we're going to be as we continue looking at James 2. We're going to continue this theme that we began to address last week about how faith is you are a follower of Jesus Christ. What makes you a follower is belief. It's by, it's by nothing that you do that you and I spend eternity with God in heaven. It's about what we believe. Do, do you sincerely believe that God in heaven loves you? And you and I, we choose to go our own way. We, we rebel against him. It's essentially we declare independence from God. That rebellion, the Bible would call it sin. Sin creates a separation from a heavenly father who loves you and he loves me. And he doesn't want you and I to then have to work our way back to him because he knows we'll never make it. So instead of making a slave towards him, he sent his son down to us. That's what we as Christians, what we believe is we, don't, we cannot live a perfect life. That's why Jesus Christ came to live a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for everything wrong I have ever done and will ever do. He rose from the grave three days later to prove this is true. We date our checks by it. Changed history. And now what James is saying is the faith that saves, you're saved by grace through faith. But that faith goes to work. That faith accomplishes something. That faith demonstrates itself through works. It is not dead. It is not useless. It is not ineffective, inoperative, or worthless. So the theme we're building on is part two as we look at James the second half is the idea that faith without faithfulness is useless. Faith without faithfulness, it's useless. And what I mean by faithfulness is here's what I mean. Faith acted upon. It's the moment when you know you're meant to go and to serve and to do and to care and to love. Faithfulness. And the reason I think this matters is so many times, we, especially folks, if you grew up in church, I bet this is true of you, right? It's certainly true of me. We can tend to error in, in one of two ways. There's more than that, but there's two really in particular to this text. Because the text we're looking at, and we, we talked about it last week, it's one of the most argued over, fought over, complicated passages of your Bible. It changed face, it changes denominations, it changes the entire way we pursue a growth in Christ. And what is our job today is to see what does it really say? And the reason I think it matters is as we understand what it really says, it keeps us from these two errors. The first error is this. Unless your faith is working, you may not spend eternity with God in heaven. Here's what I mean by that. I can remember when I was in ninth grade or eighth grade, somewhere about then, I had this moment where I walked down an aisle and I walk into a room and they say, hey, would you like to accept Christ? 
right? Perhaps some of you, you had an altar moment or, or a moment of the bed where you say a prayer. I walk up to my Sunday school teacher and I say, hey, did I just trust Christ? She says, yes. I didn't really understand what it was. I didn't know what was happening. Three, three weeks later, right? Three weeks later, I, I can remember looking at pornography and giving way to sin. And I can remember I went to youth group because that, that was just a regular part of my life then. I can remember I went to youth group for about the next week, and every week I tried to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. I asked to become a Christian again. Why? Because I had this confusing, unbiblical, anti-gospel, not-the-book-of-James view that if you're unfaithful, you must not be a believer but an unbeliever. And I got it confused. Anybody ever grow up thinking, well, hey, I, I know my parents have told me about heaven and hell. I don't want to go to hell. And then there's this sense of, well, what if I sin right before I die? And what if it's a really serious, yeah, people are like nodding their head. They're like, oh, yeah, I had that feeling. Where it's like this really serious sin. It's not just like you like stubbed your toe and cussed, even though for some of you that's like blasphemy. You would never want to do that. But right, it's like something really serious. You're like, but if I sinned, does that change my eternal destiny? What I'm telling you is throughout the Bible, what Jesus Christ wants for those who believe, for those who truly believe, to have assurance of their salvation. I have written these things that you might know to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. So one of the errors is thinking, well, if I sin, what if? In this unhealthy doubting, the other error is this. The other error is this. It's people thinking, well, of course I believe, and I'm saved by grace. Therefore, it doesn't really matter how I behave. I believe, therefore, it doesn't really matter how I live. They, they take that logical perspective of I have my fire insurance card. Therefore, I'm free no matter what happens. And what James says of that he calls it foolishness. What his buddy Paul would say of that is, may it never be. There's nothing faithful about it. So, so why do I think this matters? If you grew up, we, we can tend to believe these things, right? It's like this internal view that we just self-impose on what God's word would say. And James is trying to liberate me and liberate you from that. The other reason why I think this really matters, and when we talked about this last week, especially if you're here, if, if you grew up in church or you're coming back to church or, or you're like considering church for the first time and you don't really even like church people or Christians, what James does, especially in this text that you really have to examine clearly, is he really does demonstrate the difference between Christianity and every other major world religion. While he talks about how this faith is meant to go to work, what we're going to dissect is the difference between what saves you. Every other major form of world religion will come to you with a component of faith. They'll say, this is something to believe. But then from the belief, you must behave to where every other major world religion can boil down to this question. You, you can ask folks. This is something especially depending on backgrounds and traditional Catholicism to my Muslim friends, to everything, to those especially, like Eastern Buddhists and experiencing a pursuit of enlightenment and what that looks like, ask this question. How good is good enough? 
How good is good enough? You ever feel that way, Christian? Where you really stop and ask yourself, like, hey, how good have I been? I, I know, I know. And we somehow always reference, like, Mother Teresa in our minds. I know I'm not Mother Teresa, but I know I'm not Hitler. And so we're somewhere in between, and we start to gauge it by our works. That's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith says, Christ came to die for you and to die for me despite your works. The worst of you and the best of you, he wants it all. All he asks is that you believe. But from faith, what, what does he then draw out? What does he then call to? Follow. Belief drives behavior. Faith without faithfulness is useless. We saw this again in the passage, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Last week, we talked through 14 through 20. This week, we're going to talk through 21 through 26. The two themes that we, pull up, we really pulled out of the text last week is the idea of faith evidences itself. It shows itself. It demonstrates itself. The second theme we talked about was what is the essence of faith? Is, is we begin to diagnose and dissect today this beautiful, divine, intimate relationship between faith and works. The second theme we talked about is, but church, we can't ever get it confused that our faith is our works. Because soon as those become the same thing, not that one is evidence of the other, not that one is a symptom of the other, not that one demonstrates the other, but as soon as they become the same it's broken Christianity. It's not what Jesus died for, and it's not what sets us free. And so James, as he's giving this thesis, faith without works is dead. Faith without faithfulness, it's, it's useless. The final thing he's going to do today, like any good orator, like any good preacher, like any good pastor, like any good writer, he's going to say, I'll prove it to you. And so the thing we're going to talk about today is examples of faith. Examples of faith. To set this up, kind of recapping some of last week, right? If you were here, this section of James, it, it is the mountaintop of this book, this letter. Everything before it essentially points up to it. Everything after it essentially points back to it. You guys ever seen somebody get, a, get engaged and all of a sudden they want to show you their ring? Right? It's like every photo, they're just putting their ring up there. Like, show, yeah, like some of y'all are like, yes, Instagram, it's killing me. Right? They show that. Well, a lot of times what rings have, and I don't know why I'm pointing to mine. It's just silver with a little bit of gold. Right? But they'll have that center jewel. There's the center jewel in the middle. But then sometimes, it depends on the affordability, right? They'll then have those diamond offsets where there's those smaller diamonds to the sides. Y'all know what I'm talking about? They kind of line it. Here's what I'm telling you. Everything in the book of James it's beautiful. It's diamond quality. But it's been building towards this center-cut jewel in the middle. Real faith. Faith that follows. Faith that out of a love for God obeys and submits itself to Him. It's not dead. And if you, if you remember, we're, we're building on what does He mean by dead? He, he does not mean spiritually dead, heaven and hell, eternity. If you have questions about that, go listen to last week. We broke that down. He means useless, ineffective, inoperative, without 
consequence. Worthless. It's building towards it. The second thing we talked about, really, as you see this, one of the reasons this text, it's been argued over for centuries, is because people tend to think that the, the Apostle Paul, if you don't know him, big-time church leader, wrote a bunch of your New Testament, faithful guy, that he's somehow in contradiction, that he disagrees with what James is saying. Where, where they, they set it up, and I've always appreciated this language. They say it's like they're foes combating each other. But in reality, as we'll see today, and as we learned la- last week, they're not foes fighting each other. They're friends fighting back-to-back opposing forces. Differing evils. Paul and James were friends. Paul went and he checked in with James. And he came and he said, hey man, can you help me? Here's where I'm going. I'm on these missionary journeys. This is home base. Can you help me? They are not opposing. They are helping. One of the famous illustrations of this really comes through Martin Luther. Again, we referenced him last week. He's the great reformer. Well, really what he did is he put the word of God back in the hands of the people and illumined the idea of you're just saved by grace through faith. You don't have to do anything. There's no form of Christian pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. But he hated the book of James. He's on record saying he wished he could pull it out from his Bible Because so many times at that time as he's trying to demonstrate and show you're just saved by faith, people would point to this passage and say, no, you're not. And he just got so exhausted with it. Here's the reason why I get excited for today. Because that's where back then in all the world of respect to Martin Luther, great guy, we owe him a huge debt, can't wait to meet him one day in heaven. Our good friend Martin, he misunderstood this passage. Because really what we begin to see is we pull back this layer and we really examine the heart, what what the text is teaching. You begin to see, no, no, you don't rip it from. It absolutely complements. You want it in there because what it demonstrates is the reality of inactive faith is not impacting faith. And Jesus Christ calls you and me to be salt and light, to let our light shine before the world, to not have light that's hidden under a basket of no Use, it's dead. So the theme we'll see today, we talked about it last week. We'll we'll specifically build on it through a word justified. Paul and James, they're not foes fighting, they're friends fighting back to back. The third theme that I want to set you guys up for, many times as you come to approach this text, right, and and I think it's right to do so. There are many Bible-believing, God-fearing, faithful men and women who come to this passage and they see it through this lens. The lens is this. Faith without works is dead. And what they mean by that is they mean you must inspect the root of your faith to see if you're actually a believer in Jesus Christ. Like, Like one of the things that was true of my life and even setting it up uh, I went on through high school into college, made a total mess of my life. And it wasn't until years later that I came to realize, wait a minute, I've said I was a Christian, but I wasn't. I was not a child of God. What was true of me is I was deceived in my faith. I needed to inspect the root. Just because you say it's so doesn't mean that it is so. I needed to inspect the root. Here's what I'm saying. 
that theme, that approach towards examining the faith to see if, if you are a cult to be a good tree and there is no good fruit, does it mean by virtue that you're not necessarily a good tree? No. But you should, you should absolutely examine the tree. Well, people come and they teach this text in a way that leaves folks to say, I wonder if I'm really saved. I think you can do that. I think you can love God and teach his Bible that way. That's not my conviction. As I've spent time studying this more and more, I've grown convinced of this. James, what he's teaching to is not inspect whether or not you're actually a believer. Not question if you're an unbeliever, but he's speaking to not inspection of the root, but production of fruit. He's essentially drawing on everything he's said in this book so far. Examine your life in the mirror. Don't, don't be a hearer, but be a doer. Don't have a religion that is worthless. Grow complete and perfect, steadfast and strong. He's writing this to strengthen the faith of believers, to not get people who are unbelievers to question whether or not they're saved. Finally, as we look at this, as you read this passage, I, I, I asked this of people last week, go, study it. Search the scriptures, see if it is so. Be a Berean. And then come. We can always discuss it. If you got the Bible, turn with me, James chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 21, going through 26. We'll have it up on the screen so you can pull out a phone, or whatever's the easiest for you. James chapter 2. I'm going to read through all of it, and then we're going to come back. Was not Abraham, excuse me, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Right, if you grew up in church and you read the phrase justified by works, here's what you should do. You should start to get really nervous, especially if you ever studied the book of Romans or other passages. You should get really nervous if you just read that on face value. You see that faith, it was active along with works, and faith was completed we're going to find out what does he mean by completed. Completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. This is James' theme. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, we got to really think about that one. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. He hits it one more time. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What's the theme of this passage in the section before it? Faith without faithfulness, it's useless. It's inoperative. It's dead. But what does James do to prove this point? He's going to demonstrate examples. Right? He started it out, like if we were to go back and recap 14 through, he started it out by saying, hey, here's what's true. Faith without works is dead, and he gives an example of like if you see someone in need and you don't help them, faith in the moment, it's useless. It's, it's of no benefit. It's to no advantage. And then he almost sees this objection coming where people, especially a Jewish audience, which would have been who he would have been writing to, a believing Jewish audience would come out and say, oh, yes, yes, no, no, I get that. that that's why faith in the works, there's this congruence to where there's sameness. No, they're not the same. And then James, he sets it up here to where he's going to give these examples. Abraham, Rahab, and he's going to prove faith 
when it is not faithless, but faithful, it leaves an impact. So let's work our way through. The first thing we got to see is, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? If you know the story of Abraham, here's what's true. All right, it's found in the book of Genesis. Genesis, it's your first book of the Bible. You can call it a letter, but a book of the Bible. It's at the very beginning. Abraham first shows up. He goes by a different name, but he first shows up in chapter 12. God says to him, hey, Abraham, I'm going to go, and from you I'll bring blessing to the people. I'm going to give you a land, and from you a nation will come. And he says, go. And you see in chapter 12, Abraham has this interaction with God, and he goes fast forward three, three chapters. You see, in chapter 15, there's this moment where Abraham, explicitly according to the text, comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Right then, what did he know? In the covenant of God's promises, faith in the promises of God, and became a covenant member of God's family. That's, that's chapter 15. And then here's what you see. You fast forward to chapter 22. That was when Abraham, if you know the story, he goes to offer his son Isaac on an altar. Now, he never offers his son. God stays his hand. And it's on the same mountain where he went to offer Isaac that one day, in that same area, God would send his own son and sacrifice his son as a demonstration. We need not. But what matters is you see the timeline here. Genesis 12, Abraham is sent. Genesis 15, Abraham is saved. Genesis 22, right? Because what, what happens between 15 and 22 is the birth of his son, Isaac. A lot of scholars talk about exactly the timeline, but many would agree it's about 25 years takes place from Genesis 15 to Genesis 22. And it's in that timeline where he waits and then he takes what's likely a 13-year-old boy to the top of that mountain. And Abraham's faith, according to this passage, is justified. That, that timeline matters because here's what, here's what James is doing. He flips the order. Instead of going 12, 15, 22, he's going to go 22 to 15. To where if you didn't know that, all of a sudden you begin to think, okay, yeah, I'm saved by what I believe, but I'm also saved by how I behave. And if that were true, he would contradict his friend Paul. But that's not true. The next place we see that is the word justified. Justified. Justified in your Bible, it can mean one, multiple things, but primarily one of two things. First means declared righteous by God. Imputed, given righteousness. Salvation. Second form of justification. Vindication. Because of this, this is shown, demonstrated, brought forth as evidence to be true. Which form is James using here of the word justified? He's saying it is of vindication. Like, like right here, James, he's pulling Abraham as this example where he's saying this one who set himself by faith and following after God, he was saved by faith. And his faith was vindicated through his work with his boy, Isaac. You see this is true in Romans chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. We'll put it up here. Romans chapter 4, verse 20 through 21 is talking about Abraham. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, 
But what happened? He grew strong in his faith. He already had the faith. Is he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham had faith. In his demonstration with Isaac, he was being faithful. Here's why this matters. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, key verse, key verse. Therefore, since we have been, this word again, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so how can James say Abraham was justified by his works while his dear friend Paul says Abraham was justified by his faith? Here's why this matters. If it feels like you've shown up and now we're at Bible college, here's why this matters. How you read this impacts your eternity. How you come to understand this impacts whether or not you should be here in an evangelical gathering where we proclaim a gospel that is saved by grace through faith. Or if you feel a conviction to say, no, 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 it's not just faith. It's not just faith. There's a works. And there is a how good is good enough and only God knows. This matters, church. Jumping back into James 2. You see, now James, knowing that chronological lens, knowing the understanding of Abraham that he had, that Paul had, you see that faith, it was active along with his works. There's this intimate relationship between faith and works, but faith is not works. You see, was intimate, or excuse me, with his works. And faith was completed by his works. Completed here, if you talk with a lot of different people, they'll say, hey, look, completed that's proof right there. Your Bible says the way you go to heaven is, yes, you believe, but there's some things that you must do. And we would believe that too if we weren't thoughtfully pulling the layer off and examining it. Last week, if you're with us, we did a word study. We did a word study on the word save. Save, in Greek it's sozo. This week, we're doing a word study on this word, completed. What does it mean? Because does it mean, okay, there's a point where you become good enough? There's a point where if you stop sinning enough, then, okay, it's assured. Or does it mean something else? Thankfully, the way you do word studies is you start close and you work your way out. What I mean by that is you say, hey, how did this author use this same word elsewhere? Hopefully in the same book, if not in the same book, other books. Here's how you see this word show up in James chapter 1. I'll read it for you guys. James chapter 1, verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you remember that passage, James, he's using the same word here. Why is he using that word? He's saying, hey, in response to trials, church, grow. Don't count it misery. Count it an opportunity by faith. Grow. Complete there, he's speaking to perfection, maturity, wholeness. It's the difference between infant and adult. Keep growing. Our faith is strengthened by our faithfulness. Our faith is not saved by our faithfulness. Final point, he says there, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's him quoting Genesis chapter 15. And then he says this, Abraham was called a friend of God. This is a big opinion of mine. 
Why did James write this book? He wrote this book to demonstrate the theme of here's what real faith looks like. Here's how real faith shows up. It has an application. We are meant to be doers, not just hearers. Our talk is not meant to be cheap. It's meant to be something that brings about the transformative power of God. And how does God want to do that? Through his people, through you, through me. So James, he's elevating this. What, what is his end goal? For you and me to count ourselves as friends of God. You see, James, he knew what it was like to hang out with his big brother Jesus. That, that's who James is, his big brother Jesus. He didn't believe in him for the longest time. It wasn't until Jesus Christ's resurrection, he came back and he visited James. But it would have been in that moment where James, he came to realize everything my big brother said was true that I called false. Everything my big brother said was right about him and I denied it before others. It was all true. What do you think James felt in that moment? A restored relationship with his brother, certainly. A resolute faith and the son of the living God, certainly. And he knew what it was like to call Jesus friend. Church, one of the things that it's true of faith, your relationship with God, it is not dictated by your works. It's not dictated by what you do. But what is impacted is your fellowship. Your, your intimacy, or as James is saying here, our friendship. I'll give you two points to prove this, two. First one, again, we'll look and see how does James use this. The same word is going to show up in James chapter 4, verse 4, where he's going to talk about friendship. It, it's not based on works in eternity, heaven, or hell. Friendship's based on what do we do with this faith? Do, do we make ourselves friends with the world? Do we make ourselves friends with God? In James chapter 4, verse 4, James, he's going to tell us in a couple weeks, you adulterous people. Ah, it's kind. Do you not know that, what's this word? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So how is friendship defined? Hey, I'm going to ally myself with the things of. Let's see how his big brother describes it. You don't have to turn here. We'll put it up. John 15, verse 14. This is what Jesus says. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Chapter before this, Jesus has this phrase, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, they're the one who love me. I will show myself to them. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What is James pleading with as he talks to you and to me about why faithfulness matters so much? He's pleading about the reality of what's on the line is this intimacy, this fellowship, this friendship with God. Faith without faithfulness, it's useless. God can't bless what is inoperative and ineffective. He'll bring life to it. He will help you. He will quicken the heart. The flame of faith does not expire once it is lit but it can grow dim and it can be ineffective. You ever stood by a fire that was once raging? 
It was beautiful. Like you can look at it, it brings light, it brings warmth. You stand near it in the midst of a cold night and you almost don't need the blanket. You have to scoot your chair back because you start to get too hot because of it. Now fast forward, that fire dims, right to where the wood's burned out, and here's what's left at, at the base of it. You just have the smoldering embers. It doesn't bring warmth. It doesn't bring light. It's different. Faith without faithfulness, it's useless. James, he summarizes a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What does he mean by justified, vindicated? Your faith is shown to be the thing you value most, the thing that is true in your life. Church, by the way that we live, how true of this is the church, man? We come and we say, I love God. I want to give God my whole life. I'm going to follow after him. And in most ways, our life doesn't reflect that. Like I say, God, I trust you no matter what. I'm with you. I am for you. And then we get the phone call of the terrible diagnosis. And yes, there's grief. God, God honors grief. But in that moment, our first step is toward God. How could you with this punitive mindset? Yet we've proclaimed, I trust you. I love you. I'm for you. Your will be done. We've said that many times. And his will is something I disagree with. And I switch to throwing a spiritual version of a fit in my own life. I come and I say, if I seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all these things will be added to me. And yet we tend to have this mindset with money and resources where really it's marked by greed, where we cling to something. We don't trust the creator of the universe who it's his anyway to take care of us. We come and we talk about our marriages. In our marriages, we come here and we say, yes, marriage, no. It is a reflection of the gospel, an unconditional covenant where God, he so loves us, he sent his son, and because of that, man, I am resolutely committed to you. It's not, if you do this, I will do this. That's a contract. It is, I pledge to this. Why? Because Jesus Christ pledged to me. When I was undeserving, I was unkind, and I was a rebel. But we claim, yes, no, marriage conferences, I love that, I'm all about it. And then we go home, man, and we're cold towards it. We make our wife feel lesser. We make our husband feel worthless. He grows cold. It's like a, it's like a flower, when it blossoms, it has this beautiful bouquet, this aroma to it. And when you get around it, it's just a delight. But over time, the flower fades, the flower withers. And what happens? You lose the aroma. You lose the bouquet. James is saying, I don't want you to lose the aroma. I don't want you to lose the bouquet. Church, you're not saved by what you do, but it absolutely impacts quality of life and the demonstrated faithfulness to a lost world that questions whether or not this whole thing's even true, or if it's just as much of a fable as Santa Claus. I had a chance last week, went to a coffee shop right around here in town, met a nice young gal, um, had a great conversation with her. Her family, she came out of a, a totally different faith expression than Christianity. 
But to her, all religion, she lumped in one category, which that's fair, right? And she came to share, no, hey, this happened to my mom. This faith community tried to get her married at 18. She had no choice. It was prearranged. They said if she didn't, she would go to hell. My mom had to run away from this community, literally had to flee. My mom was deeply damaged by that. Because of that, all religion is worthless. There's no love. It's all hypocrisy, judgmental people coming from a holier-than-thou position and saying, you're a sinner, I'm saved. She wanted nothing to do with the tender kindness and love of Jesus Christ. The one who his people took his name and dragged it through the mud under the lens of this is what faithfulness would have you do, that misused, abused passages of Bible that were meant to treasure, that are meant to bring life and applied it to this is what God would have. That as they did that in his name, it broke his heart. And because of that, to her, she wants nothing to do with the lot of faith. Not, not even just Christian faith, the lot of it. Church, what would God have us do for that young woman? How would he have us demonstrate love? He'd have us demonstrate love. He'd have us be salt and light, be an encouragement to her, a wonderful neighbor, a friend, a caretaker, one who goes out of their way, one who gives to the needy, one who lives with a sense of joy born out of faithfulness to where she looks at and says, that's just different. And when she asks why, the only answer we ever have, the only answer, is because there's a God in heaven who loves me. He was kind to me when I was unkind. He made me worthy when I was worthless. He's good, he's true, and he's for you. He's sorry about everything that ever happened to your mom, but he can redeem everything. That's faithful. That's what God wants to do through you. That's what he wants to do through me. As we live that life of faithfulness, we walk as friends of God. Intimacy. A fellowship, connection, a beautiful aroma. James, he's going to prove the point. It's like he doubles down here with one more illustration. We won't spend as much time on it because it's redundant, yet it's like he's putting the final nail in the coffin. He points to Rahab, right? If you don't know who Rahab is, right, to set it up, Abraham was a male Jewish patriarch, leader of a family, big deal, leader, all that stuff. Male Jewish patriarch, Rahab. Female, Gentile, prostitute. There's this beautiful imagery that James pulls, and he says, doesn't matter who you are, your background, your story, your decisions, your ethnicity, doesn't matter. Christ has come for all, and all can be effectively used. He talks about Rahab. If you ever want to read her story, it's Joshua chapter 2. She, she oversees, she owns a brothel. Right? She's in the city of Jericho. Right? While there, she's heard of this God of Israel and the wonders that he has done through the Exodus. That's the book of Exodus. Right? Here's of these wonderful things. And she, by reputation, comes to faith in Yahweh, God. That faith then leads her as these Israelite spies come in to check out Jericho because they're going to conquer it. They come in to check out Jericho to kind of spy it out. 
This, this little principality, this ruler, they call him a king, this king over the city, he hears Israelite spies have come. And he says, hey, Rahab, you know where they are. Tell me where they are. And these men, fearing, where do we go and hide? They find Rahab. Rahab goes and she hides them. And she saves them from death by this king. James uses this as an example because what happened for Rahab? She had faith in the God of the Exodus. But then what happened? Her faith was justified. It was vindicated. It was demonstrated, shown to be true by the way that she hid these messengers. Guys, our faith, it is not determined by our works, but our faith is demonstrated by our works. It's shown. It's justified. It's vindicated. It's why he ends it here with this simple illustration that we would all connect with. He says, for judgment, oh, I'm sorry, that's the wrong, wrong passage. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead. Have you ever seen someone just after they've passed away? And what you then have here is you then have a change there of physical and soul. You're not just matter. You are spiritual in essence. You have a soul is the body apart from the spirit is dead, the spirit is gone. That life there, you can even immediately look at folks and see that person's no longer here. You can come and it's right to honor and, and, and have a funeral and a procession and be able to see and to visit. That, that's, that's good. But what no one ever begins to think is, no, no, they're still here. You don't think that. Because as the spirit is gone, there's no longer any animation to life. It's no longer vital to it. And James is proving the point. That is what faith is like when it's not faithful, when it's not put to work, when it's not demonstrating light and love to a lost world. <coughs> so what have we learned through this passage? We've seen faith without faithfulness. It's, it's useless. Right? We saw that through what are, what are the evidences of faith, how faith, it demonstrates itself to be true. We saw what's the essence of faith. Faith is not works, but faith goes to work. There's a key theme here, too, where a lot of folks, you come and you talk with them, and they, they say things like, well, hey, I don't know if I trusted Christ as a child or if I trusted Christ later when I finally started taking my faith seriously and there was a joy and animation and a sense of vitality to my faith. Here's what I would tell you. James, he gives counsel to that too. Only God knows the answer to that. Only God knows. But wherever you are, if you sit here today and you're either wondering or you have this desire to go to work, which church we all should, the answer is the same. Walk by faith. Give thanks for the grace you've received at the cross. Live a life of repentance. Repentance is a beautiful word that culture took and we demonized it as we yelled at other people. Repent should never be coming and yelling at someone else. It's this inward motive where we, we turn it on ourselves. Is this cry and this call of freedom. That's all it means. We saw the essence of faith. And then this week we talked through what are the examples.
I'm going to close with a story about a friend of mine. And I'm going to light the band up, and we're going to sing one last song. I had a dear friend who modeled this for me in a huge way, huge way. She, she came to know Jesus Christ when she was younger, grew up in this faith, but it was one of those where her faith, like a lot of folks, right, it was front and center, yet at the same time pushed off to the back burner. Gets married, goes on, lives life. All of a sudden, marriage, life's moving along, where she found out something devastating. She found out, right, that, that while she was married, her husband had come, and that's where too, hey band, I'll pray, and then y'all come up at the end. Sorry, I probably ruined that transition, not them. Welcome to the Springs, right? <laughs> right, hey, so that's where she's praying, or excuse me, she realized, right, in the midst of marriage with this family, with these kids, these grown ones, the secret comes out. She finds out the secret, and it was the fact that her husband had been unfaithful. He had stepped outside the marriage. Infidelity had crept in. Broken trust. Harm. Pain. Sin brings consequences. Sin brings pain. She, she chose to, in that moment, she chose to, in that moment, extend a grace. Where, where she realized in the faith that she had this covenant view, this understanding of marriage, it's I do, not this, then that. It's I do, and they go and they get in counseling. Here's the thing, though, that pain and that moment of faith that she'd clung to, it started to wither. It started to grow cold. Where instead of, and in response to pain, acting in faithfulness, she chose to cope. She chose to respond in a way of brokenness. Like many of us, we, we respond with control, anxiety, whatever, except hers was, I will step out of this marriage too. And infidelity crept in again. And then again. And then again. This continued for a season of life where, where there's this constant back and forth in her heart and her mind as she views God and understands the things that are true of this desire to want to be free, but this fear of it's not better to tell. It's not better to be faithful, to trust God no matter what, but to instead to allow the withering, the aroma, the friendship with God to wither till last year. Last year, she began to have the Holy Spirit just tapping on her heart, saying, I've called you to something. I've called you to confession. I've called you to living in truth, walking in the light, having a unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace, having a marriage that's marked by unconditional love. Choose faithfulness. She had amazing courage. She chose to share. She chose to confess. It didn't all come out at one time. Why? Because she too is scared. Like, I can so be scared. But she chose to be faithful. What did it do? Of course it hurt her husband. Of course. There's no way around that. There's pain. But what began to happen to this beautiful bouquet, this flower that had withered under the banner of a, of a life that wasn't marked by faithfulness, but faithlessness, it began to move towards a blossom. It began to change. This sense of joy 
in this peace, this pursuit of wholeness and truth in marriage. This marriage that had once been based on this perceived lie was now founded not just on the truth of God's word, but practically lived out, demonstrated to everyone. She's a different woman. She's a different leader. Her life, it sings a different song. Church, your sin, it may not be that. Maybe maybe that is you and we want to help you. Maybe yours is, hey, you're just generally apathetic towards the things of God. You come and you say, yes, I believe. But when it comes to going all in, to embracing the reality of what can look like Christian support, help, community accountability, I don't want anything to do with that. When it comes to living a life marked by love, not just knowing what is right, but living righteously. You say, I care, but I don't care that much. Here's what James is telling you, and here's what James is telling me. Faith. Without faithfulness is useless. And what hangs on the line? Fellowship with God. Intimacy with a father who loves you and who loves me. Friendship with Jesus. Savior of the world. He's not threatening to abandon you. He's not threatening to disown you. But he loves you. And he wants to know you. And he wants to know me. So join us now as we stand and we sing about that faithful love.